Well, good morning. Glad you braved the elements this morning. <laughs> it's really funny to me how we curl up in a ball in Arizona when it rains, but I'm glad you're here. I do have one thing that I have to get off my chest. Um, John, why? Why would you sit in the front row and mock me with your giant scare? Have you, have you seen this guy? Tell you what, it's a good thing that Jack told me that I have to love you this morning. And we're going to try. Uh, yeah. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. But anyway, I am a Vikings fan, if you don't know. John is a diehard Giants fan, so uh, we tease each other about that a lot. But anyway, I love a good story. How about you? I love a good story. Uh, there is something incredibly powerful about being drawn into a story that captures your heart and mind. A good book, a movie, a show have the ability to captivate, captivate us for hours, in fact. But there is nothing like hearing an incredible story that ends up being true, right? Like we, we have a lot of fictitious stories that we watch and we read, but when we have this incredible story that we find out is true, there is this incredible extra inspiration and power to it. There's these stories of, of people being courageous and brave and overcoming tremendous odds, their lives being changed right before our eyes. These are stories that move our hearts like none other. Uh, recently, I rewatched a movie called Hacksaw Ridge. Anybody seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge before? A few of you? Yeah, okay. So the movie was released in 2017. It sounds like a horror movie. It's not. Okay, but the movie was an Oscar-nominated movie in 2017. It was nominated for Best Actor from Andrew Garfield. It was uh, Best Director, Best Picture of the Year. It actually won two Oscars for film editing and sound mixing. It grossed $180 million in the box office, and Hacksaw Ridge ended up captivating audiences with a story that most people had never heard before. The story follows a young man named Desmond Doss as he navigates becoming a member of the army while holding on to the conviction that he has towards pacifism. It takes place during World War II, and Doss is a devout Christian. And Doss wanted desperately to serve his country during World War II, but he had one requirement. He would not carry or hold a rifle. So there were, ended up, yeah, you could imagine, there was a lot of conflict, there was a lot of criticism, there was a lot of controversy over this position that he had, where he wanted to serve in the army without ever firing or even touching a weapon. Now, eventually, Doss was allowed to become a combat, combat medic, and so he was armed only with what I can imagine was his Bible and his medic bag, and Doss and his regiment were eventually called to what would end up becoming one of the deadliest battles in the Pacific War on the island of Okinawa. And while they were on the island, they were sent to an area called the Maeda Escarpment, which was more commonly known as Hacksaw Ridge. The battlefield was actually located atop a 400-foot cliff, of which the Japanese hold or held their premium spot there, while the American and Allied armies were down below. And the only way for the army to access that 450-foot 
uh, cliff on top was to climb upon, up to the top of the cliff and then fight their way through the Japanese. Eventually, they would make their way up. They would be just absolutely hammered day after day after day by machine gun fire that was you know, really hidden well. There were booby traps everywhere, and they would have to retreat back down the cliff, regroup, and figure out how in the world are we going to defeat the enemy on top of this cliff. On a particular day, Doss's unit climbed up the top of the, the cliff. They encountered the same attack that every other unit had before. They eventually had to retreat back down to the bottom to regroup. But Desmond Doss decided to stay. He knew there were dozens, if not hundreds, of his friends in the battlefield who were injured and potentially dying while we regrouped at the bottom of the hill. And so Doss decided to do everything he could to help them. And so under the cover of darkness, Doss proceeds to make his way through the battlefield, carrying back injured soldiers and then lowering them down the cliff with a rope. Person after person after person. It's estimated that he saved the lives of 75 injured soldiers that night, including a few who were Japanese. In numerous interviews later, Das responds to why he did what he was doing. And he says, I just remember praying a prayer that night saying, uh, I just said, Lord, please help me get one more. Let me get one more. Now, eventually the Americans would take Hacksaw Ridge, but they would never forget what Desmond Doss did that day. And on October 12, 1945, Doss is awarded the highest medal in the military, the Medal of Honor. Doss's story, even to this day, we made a movie about it not that long ago. His story is one of inspiration and encouragement to military men and women all over the world. And in fact, it's a story that had the power to even change the Army's requirements for conscientious objectors who still want to serve their country. The story of Desmond Doss and Hacksaw Ridge is a powerful, filled with courage, conviction, and life change story. And no matter how hard someone might try, there is no arguing it. There's no saying, well, that didn't really happen. No, because both Desmond Doss and an entire regiment of the army witnessed this occur. And this is something that the early Christians discovered early on in their faith, this idea of the power of a story. And it's something that I think we can learn from today as we look in the book of Acts. So, as Joe mentioned, we've been in the series in the book of Acts for over a year now. Uh, last weekend was our year anniversary of being in the book of Acts. Um, we're just getting started, though. We are now in chapter 11 of 28. Um, you know, uh, it's a good thing I you know, have a retirement account saved away because I might need that just as I finish up the book of Acts. I don't know how long it's going to take us, but if you're new with us, uh, you should know that we've been working through this book for the last year. We've been taking some breaks, and we're back into this book. We started almost exactly a year ago, and today, as I mentioned, we're going to be going into chapter 11. And as we do, we will see Peter return from his experience in Caesarea and Joppa with Cornelius and the Gentiles who were living in that area. He will return back to 
Jerusalem. So if you have your phone with you, just a reminder, you can open up the YouVersion Bible app, go to more events. You'll find Genesis Church there. You can follow along with us. Don't have the app, get it. It's a great free app for you. If you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11. We're going to be starting in verse 1. Now, as I mentioned, Peter, one of the first leaders of the church, one of the first apostles in the church, has been in the area of Caesarea and Joppa, which is along the shore of the Mediterranean in, you know, modern-day Israel. And two of these port cities in the Mediterranean were considered one of the bustling cities where people would come and they would trade and merchants came. And there was a lot of, uh, of different pluralistic ideas about religion and politics. And it was a cultural just mixed bag at each of these places. And while Peter is there, he meets a man named Cornelius and his friends. Cornelius happens to be a Roman centurion. He's a high-ranking officer in the Italian regiment in the Roman Empire. And he's curious to hear what Peter has to say. He has this encounter with this angel who says, Peter, this guy, go find him because he's got something to tell you. And Cornelius is like, okay, I want to hear what you have to say. So he finds Peter and Peter comes back and, and he says, all right, now, like, what is this all about? And Peter tells him about Jesus. Peter, or, as he does, Cornelius and his friends become some of the first non-Jewish people. They become believers in Jesus. And as a result of this, this and a vision that Peter had received prior, the world that Peter has been living in is being flipped on its head. Everything he has known about faith and Judaism and Jesus is being changed right before his eyes. And the news of what happened in Caesarea and Joppa with Cornelius and his friends and Peter and this vision he had, it starts to spread throughout the area, which is where we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea, that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You you entered the home of Gentiles, which, by the way, if you aren't familiar with that word, just means non-Jewish people. You, You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. Now, listen, this was a controversial topic in first century Judaism. As I mentioned, because of the rule of the Roman Empire at the time, Most cities like Joppa and Caesarea and even into Jerusalem to some degree were pluralistic in nature, especially when it came to religion. There were all sorts of beliefs and gods and temples that existed within these cities. And so in most cities, Jews and Gentiles were forced to end up living together. There was no way of separating themselves. Despite the differences in how they lived their lives, they were forced to live among each other. And they didn't really like each other that much. You know, Jews thought Gentiles were heathens, and Gentiles thought Jews were mostly just lazy. They took a day off each week. You know, they had all these rules. They just didn't get along very well. And so as a result, the Jewish people had to be very careful about certain things that they felt like God was calling them to in the Old Testament. In particular, one of those laws was their dietary laws. Right? If you go to a Jewish deli today, you'll notice that everything is what they call kosher. Right? And that, that idea of kosher foods actually comes from the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus chapter 11. The belief was, and the instruction was by God, 
that these dietary laws were set up so that they would be a separate people who exhibited and exampled the holiness of God to the nations around them. And so God called them to eat certain foods and to not eat other foods. The problem was, it was hard to live as a Jew among these Gentile cities and not come into contact with a lot of these unkosher foods, these foods that were, they were restricted from. And so there was no law, Old Testament law, prohibiting Jewish people and Gentiles from being together or eating together, but it was frowned upon by Jewish people because the temptation or the ability to eat unkosher foods in the home of a Gentile family would be great. And so the common tradition was, look, in order for you to stay away from breaking these dietary laws, don't even go into the home of Gentiles. Stay away from it. I mean, the progression makes sense, right? Only eat the foods that God has guided us to. And who eats the foods that God doesn't want us to eat? Well, it's people who are not Jewish. So don't eat with non-Jewish people. And you won't have to worry about breaking the dietary laws. This was common in the Jewish world in the first century. There were a lot of laws. There's over 600 laws in the Old Testament. But there were all of these ultra, also, also these oral traditional laws. And these were like hedges of protection to make sure you wouldn't even come close to breaking the law. They got kind of extreme, in fact. Like, it wasn't uncommon for Pharisees to walk around with their heads down so that they wouldn't, you know, look at a woman with lustful eyes. They would often call them bleeding Pharisees because they were known to run into things all the time, <laughs> right? But that was a way for them to make sure I'm not going to break this law, so I'm going to follow this law so I don't break that law. So you have these laws just stacked on top of each other. And so when Peter comes back to Jerusalem and, and these people are, these Jewish believers are like, what were you thinking? Like, what were you thinking? How could you do something so stupid? Why would you go into the homes of these Gentiles? Why, why would you even think that that would be a good idea for you to do? And so Peter, Peter knowing the story, you know, he, he's like, I, I get it, right? I understand. It seems so careless, right? But Peter is equipped with a response, which is where we pick it up in verse 4. It says, then Peter told them exactly what had happened. Verse 5, I was, I was in the town of Joppa, he said. And while I was praying, I went into this trance and saw a vision. Something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. When I looked inside the sheet, I saw all sorts of tame and wild animals, reptiles and birds, and I heard a voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. And then Peter says, and look, I said... No. I said, no, Lord. I, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice from heaven spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And then he says, and this happened three times before the sheet and all it contained was pulled back up to heaven. And so as he's being criticized, Peter's like, I get it. <laughs> I understand, but but I got to tell you this story. And he tells him this vision that he had back in Acts 10. And as rare as it is, he needs to be very clear about what happened in order to calm the criticisms he's receiving to set the record straight. He even lets them know, I, I was not like 
for this right off the bat. In fact, I, I said, God, no, I won't do that. And then God had to keep showing it to me three times. He's like, okay, Peter, you're not getting it. Let's do it again, right? We're not like that. I get that. We're all, we got it figured out. But for Peter, this is a big deal, right? Like I'm not getting it. And so God just keeps, he keeps pursuing him with it. This wasn't something that Peter just decided on a whim. He needed convincing himself. But once he was, man, things start happening. Look what it says in verse 11. Peter keeps with the story. He says, just then three men who'd been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where they were staying. The Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not to worry that they were Gentiles because he would have been worried, right? These six brothers here accompanied me and we soon entered the home of the man who had sent for us. He told us how an angel had appeared to him in his home and had told him, send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He will tell you how you and everyone in your household can be saved. And as I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Notice what Peter's doing. He's like, man, I started connecting the dots. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift we gave, he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who is I, Peter says, to stand in the way? I mean, can you hear the awe? Almost the, the mind-blowing experience that Peter has in these words here. I mean, he even seems to be reeling from everything that he's just experienced in Caesarea and Joppa with these men. He obviously realizes it's an unbelievable occurrence. But as he says in verse 17, at the end, like, who am I to stand in the way of what God wants to do? Who am I to stand in the way when the Spirit of God wants to work in people that I would never have dreamed God would want to experience his Holy Spirit, but that's what God wants. In fact, I've learned all these laws and all of these hedges of protection we've created, well, they've been repealed because of Jesus. Clearly, new things are happening. Now, listen to the response of his critics, right? Beginning of this passage, they're pretty critical of Peter. And by the end of him telling this story, this is the response. Verse 18, when the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Okay, before we go any further, I want you to notice what Peter doesn't do when he faces criticism or questioning from the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. When his changed life, Peter's life has been changed because of this vision and this encounter with Cornelius. When his changed life meets their criticism and questions, notice that Peter doesn't start preaching and spouting off a bunch of theological jargon. It's not where he starts. All that Peter does is he tells the story. This is what happened. Now, this is nothing new. In the Gospels, we see similar occurrences happen when a person's life is changed by the power of Jesus and new things begin happening. In Mark chapter 5, for instance, Jesus goes to the area of the Gerasenes where a demon-possessed man approaches him. 
And Jesus casts out the demons from the man and sends them into a herd of pigs who go barreling off a cliff into the area below it, right? And while the locals aren't real happy about losing their herd, the demon-possessed man's life has been changed forever. And he takes his story to the streets. Now notice what he does here in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 5, verses 18 and 20. It says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family. Tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he's been. He doesn't say, now go home and tell everybody, you know, the, the five tenets of what it, you know, what it means to follow Jesus. He doesn't do that. He says, just go tell them what happened. Verse 20, so the man started off to the visit the 10 towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. The story of a changed life by Jesus is powerful. Partially because it inspires and partially because it's almost impossible to argue. Listen, like Peter and the demon-possessed man and Desmond Doss, you have a story. You have a story. If you follow Jesus, you have a story of how he has changed your life. And I'm here to tell you, and Peter realizes this, your story of life change is your most powerful asset. Do you know what Peter and Desmond Doss and the demon-possessed man didn't have? You know what they didn't have? They didn't have a theological degree. They didn't have a Master's of Divinity or a library of commentaries and theological work. They had none of that. The only thing they had was the story of Jesus changing their life. And listen, I have an office. You're welcome to come there sometime if you'd like. Uh, and it's full of books, theological books, historical books, biblical languages, books just on the Christian life. And while they can be great support to my faith and to yours, they do not hold a candle to the power of the story of a person's life changed by Jesus. They don't hold a candle to that. I could read you every word of John Calvin's Institutes and Augustine's Confessions and Justo Gonzalez's story of Christianity, and none of it would impact you like hearing the story of a person whose life has been completely changed by the love, grace, and forgiveness of Jesus. Which is why your story, my story, of life change is our most powerful asset to helping other people experience and know Jesus. During the last year, um, many of you know, I've made some pretty significant lifestyle changes. Um, in particular, I have spent the last 12 months completely changing how I take care of myself physically. And everything from nutrition to exercise to sleep I've changed it all. It's, I don't know, it's by the power of God only. But there's one thing that I have dramatically changed about six months ago in my diet. And some of you know this, and many of you don't. But after some research and thoughtful consideration, I decided to change my diet to entirely plant-based, which means no dairy, no eggs, no meat, all plants. I know, I'm a weirdo, I get it. 
Now, I'm awful. Listen. Yes. Thank you, Jane. I appreciate that. appreciate your, yeah. Now, look, I, I, have, I don't talk about this very much because, like, the joke is, like, how do you know if someone's in, uh, is, does CrossFit or is a vegan? They'll tell you, right? Like, that's the joke. That's not, I don't want that. That's not why I do this, okay? And I'm often hesitant to tell. But, but I'm happy to tell people uh, if they have questions or criticism, you know, about it. I'm, re- I'm happy to talk about that. And while I'd be happy to help people understand, you know, some of the health benefits of becoming plant-based, I don't do that. I could point you or a person to books and documentaries and scientific studies that helped me make that decision, but I never do. Instead, if people ask me, why in the world would you live your life without steak and cheese? I just tell them my story. I tell them, I felt horrible for so long. And since becoming entirely plant-based, I am more energetic, I am more productive, I am more passionate, I'm more healthy than I've ever been. I tell them how that choice, and some others as well, it's greatly improved my spiritual, emotional, mental well-being. Tell them how my most important relationships in my life have never been better. I mean, who knew? Broccoli was so powerful right? And listen, you could argue with me about the details of going plant-based. You could question and criticize all the data and studies out there, but what you cannot do is argue my story. This is how I've been changed. Good luck trying to tell me and the people around me that none of what I just told you happened. He didn't, nothing really changed, right? I could show you a picture of me a year ago and go, something changed, right? And it's not just that. If you talk to my wife or my kids, I would hope they would tell you the same. And the same is true when it comes to your life with Jesus, which on a side note, I will tell you this, none of what any changes I have made in the last year could have occurred without him. The, you know, people ask me like, what? What spurred it on? You know what it was? I started reading the Bible every day. That's it. Try it. See what happens. I promise you. It's good. But listen, you have a story. And that story of life change is powerful. Your story of life change is unarguable. When your life is truly changed by the power and work of Jesus, biblical change, your story becomes the most powerful asset you have in telling people about Jesus. People want to know. People ask me all the time, how'd you do it? I love Jesus. I don't know. He changed my life. And like it did for, other, for Peter, your story of life change has the power to change the lives of others. When Peter simply tells these critics what happened, what is their response? We can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting their sins and receiving eternal life. Their lives too are changed. Why? Because Peter told a story. Peter just told a story. These devout Jewish Christians' lives are changed because of what God has done in the life of Peter and the Gentiles in Caesarea and Joppa. Our vision at this church is to become a community of changed lives, changing lives. And your greatest asset in living into that vision is the story you have 
of a changed life in Jesus. If you follow Jesus, he is writing a story of change in your life that has the power and the potential to lead others to experience the same change. It's the way he made it all work together. It's just how it works. And if you're not following Jesus, let me just say this. The stories of those around you have the power to bring hope and the life change you're looking for. Paul talks about this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says this in verse 4. He says, he comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they're troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. In other words, God has given you a story and he wants you to tell it so that other people would be comforted by his hope and his joy that comes through Jesus Christ, that they too would know the same life change and comfort that you know in God. You know, the idea of being a community of changed lives, changing lives, it's not some clever statement that we painted on the wall one day and we're hooked up to certain places in the building like, wow, that sounds really great. It is, it is a life commitment. It is something we surrender to every single day. It is the call on our lives. It is the call on our church. It's the story of who we are and who we want to be. It's the story that we want to write for future generations. It's the story of a community of people who experienced the life change that comes through Jesus and saw the lives of others change because they were just simply willing to tell their story. Your story of life change, friends, is your most powerful asset in this world. So, when people ask you, what's this all about? What's all this, what, what is all of this new thing happening in your life? Tell them. When someone asks you why you've made certain lifestyle choices or certain decisions, Tell them your story. Even when you're faced with criticism and questions, your most powerful asset to bring clarity is to tell your story. Nobody can argue that. Nobody could say, you're not really plant-based, Ryan. How could you say that? Come to my house. We'll share a meal. And then you'll be like, ew, gross, and you'll leave, right? (laughs) Actually, you won't. It's delicious. Just tell your story. Now, this requires something of you first. I will say that. It requires something of all of us. It requires you to know your story. You know, if if you're like, wait, how has God changed my life? You need to sit down and pray and think about that because it's evident. It's clear. And if you're looking for for other answers, maybe ask some people around you. They'll, They'll point it out too. I mean, have you ever taken the time to think about, like, how has God really changed my life? If, there's, if not, there's no better time to do it right now. In addition, if you're here today and you're sort of on the fence about Jesus, can I just, I just want you to look around this room. You don't have to move your head. Just kind of, you know, don't make yourself, just kind of look out the side of your eyes because you are surrounded by people whose lives have been changed by Jesus. And every single one of, yeah, and every single one of those stories is powerful. It's individualized and it's personal, but it's powerful. I, mean, I, I could bring person after person after person up here and say, just tell your story 
And we would be here till next week listening to the stories of how Jesus has completely altered the lives of the people in this community. If you choose to follow Jesus, and I hope you will choose to follow Jesus, he will rewrite a story of change in your life. And it will become a powerful asset in helping other people understand who Jesus is and experiencing the same change in their lives. Maybe just, maybe just if you're here and you're on the fence, maybe just keep hanging around a little more. Maybe just ask a few people how Jesus has changed their life. See what they say. So this week, I want you to do two things. I want you to do two things. First, I want you to take some time, whether it's tonight, tomorrow, whatever it is, to just simply sit and be reminded of how Jesus has changed your life. Just think back. You don't have to think back that long, I'll bet. The ways in which Jesus has changed your life. I want you to spend some time in the coming days reflecting on the ways that Jesus has altered who you are. And then second, I want you to see that story as a powerful asset you have when questions come your way, when maybe criticism comes your way, when curiosity comes your way. Just tell your story. Look, you don't have to be like, well, in 1 Peter not, you know, 4, it says this. You don't, look, there, there's a place for that. I'm not saying that. But your most powerful and, and, and always at its you know, available asset is your story. This is what Jesus has done in my life. He's changed my life. Tell the story. Tell the story like Peter did in the face of criticism. Just tell the story. You have a story, and it is a powerful asset in your life. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the, the power of the story that Peter tells in that moment in Acts chapter 11, and may it just remind us this morning of how powerful our story is, the story that you're writing with our lives, the ways in which you're changing us, the ways in which we're thinking different and behaving different and being in relationship differently and raising our kids differently, managing our finances differently and loving the people around us differently. Thank you for the way that you're shaping us and changing us. And we recognize that this is a process. But God, we may not be where we ultimately want to be, but we certainly aren't where we once were. And may we always remember how you have changed our lives. May you provide opportunities for us to just tell our story. That people would have ears to hear what you've done in the lives of so many people in this room, people watching online. That that story would be compelling, that it would draw people to you that their lives too would be changed through the telling of the story of how you've changed our lives. Mm. Just so grateful that you have invited us, all of us, no matter who we are, to be members of your family, members of your kingdom. And so if you're here this morning and you're on the fence about that, can I just point you to Jesus? Your Lord, the Lord, the Savior of this world, the one who holds all things together, including your story, that Jesus is on the edge of his seat calling out to you to come and follow me. Let me, let me change your story. Let me change your life that you might live with purpose and meaning, that you might experience joy 
and patience and rest. That you would be forgiven and redeemed. That you would have a story to tell the world of the life that has been changed by me. Jesus is calling to you and saying, come, follow me. And the Bible says, all we have to do is say, yes, okay, I'll follow. Will you do that this morning? Will you take that step? Allow Jesus to begin the change that can happen in a person's life, in your life. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his resurrection. That new life, changed life is possible because he's alive, because he's with us, because he is working, that his Holy Spirit is blowing through this world and into this room and to the hearts of people today. I pray for a fresh wind of your Holy Spirit this morning, that we would be reminded of the power of the story that you're writing in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.